welcome back to the Just Wondering podcast with your host, Madeline Jean. This episode is a part two to my first conversation that I had with my phenomenal friend, Salome. She is going to be talking about her story in more depth, um, and then she's also going to be addressing the very real, very active topics of our country right now within the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, We are going to hopefully be contemplating. um, I, I would hope that listeners would contemplate their own allyship or maybe non-existent allyship um, with our black friends in this world and especially in our country right now. So um, I would really, really encourage you to be thinking about your own process and your own fight with um, everything going on and then I'm talking about, you know, I think especially for me, like really reflecting on my own anti-racist journey and how can I be better and how can I do better. So Salome really helps us with that. She did not have to do this at all, but just the fact that she would come on this platform and be a voice Um, I just respect the hell out of her and I just thank you for tuning in and I hope that you're able to listen through this sort of lengthy episode, but know that it is the best, most important episode that I have put out on my podcast and I will be thankful um, for this one for days and weeks and months and years to come. So Yeah, without further ado, let's start to hear from Salome. Hey, Salome. Hi, Maddie. So we are back for a part two with Salome. I'm pretty excited. I'm honestly, I'm actually more than even excited like I am so incredibly thankful that I have a friend like Salome who will go to these lengths not not even lengths but I think be able to go there and just talk about some really hard things and so I just thank her ahead of time for her vulnerability and for agreeing to do a part two with us because I know we had some questions and um her first part was a popular episode (laughs) got a lot of feedback that you wanted to know more so um yeah we're excited to have her back I'm how are you today Salome I'm doing really well that's good I feel rested good which is really nice haven't had that in a minute yeah and um had my second coffee today so I'm ready you're like on a roll I'm ready to do this (laughs) I'm Yes, I'm definitely thankful. We recorded, or I guess my sister and I recorded an episode about a week ago talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely going to talk a little bit about that, or a lot about that today. Um, and just, shocker, I'm black. <laughs> sh- shocker. <laughs> um, she, yeah, she's going to be talking about her own experience and also talking more about growing up and um, her time in her church that 
it's considered a cult. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a lot of really great discussion topics before you want to, or before you listen to me ramble on about more things, um, let's get right into it. So do you want to start with telling us what has been going through your mind this week? And then, you know, relating it back to whatever, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, what's been going through my mind this week has just been a lot of reflection I felt so proud of my friends. I feel a lot of anxiety about the future because I'm not sure how far this movement's going to go. I'm not sure if it's going to just be another Selma situation that, you know, another 40 years we're doing the same battle again. I'm not sure if, you know, a lot of the voices behind this movement are as genuine as they should be. But I'm also really hopeful. I feel like I've actually taken a step back on social media. I used to be really vocal about um, social justice issues and my perspective on things. But um, as of late, just on my feed and what I've been reading, like, can I say this kind of be blunt? Like my white friends? Yeah. You guys are making me so proud. You guys are going through your, like, social justice puberty moment. (laughs) I haven't even really been chiming in or saying anything really because you guys are just educating yourselves like everything that I've been seeing I'm just like yes 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 so yeah that's mostly what's been going through my mind just a lot of pride and honestly apprehension but um hope yeah that's awesome I it warms my heart to hear that of course um because as we told our listeners on part one if any of you didn't listen to that episode, we did talk about our relationship and how we've been friends for a really long time Mm -hmm. and how, you know, we've been through ups and downs and ins and outs. And a lot of the things that we have been through (laughs) um, have to do with very things that she's talking about today. Yeah. I I feel like it's safe to say we went to the same high school and our high school is a really small um, private Christian school up in kind of Shoreline Edmonds area. So there were about five black people that I can remember, and like two of them were my own siblings. <laughs> like, mm. And me and Madeline really connected like our freshman year because we were both kind of, we just didn't really fit the, the physical look that a lot of our close friends with how we ate lunch with every day did. So it was really comforting in some ways to have a friend like Maddie and to just have someone who felt what I was feeling sometimes during lunch when we felt ignored or overlooked and just kind of being able to cling to that and yeah yeah so it definitely started Mm -hmm. from kind of an early early time like we we've been friends for a long time obviously like I think we said 10 years and I think it's interesting the dynamics of Yes, the high school that we went to, the people that we were around, um, and now we've already kind of talked about this, about like seeing how different people that have been in our lives in the past are supporting mm-hmm. or um, being an ally during the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's obviously great that you've seen some great people that have been voicing their thoughts and concerns and fighting for justice on social media like that's been really beautiful I don't know about you but like I know that there was stigma around like don't post a black square but for me and I 
totally, you can leave a comment or argue with me about this, but like, I personally believe that posting the black square, as long as you weren't hashtagging Black Lives Matter and just hashtagging something else or Blackout Tuesday or whatever, um, for me at least, it showed solidarity on my Instagram feed. When I scrolled down my Instagram feed and saw the black squares, um, I personally was like, wow, like that many people like posted their square because, you know, it's like, it's interesting. It's really interesting, but also I felt like it was really cool. I don't know. How, how did you feel about that? <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like the black square, the blackout Tuesday trend was kind of a double-edged sword because mm-hmm. it, on one, on one element, it was so inspiring and so comforting, frankly, for me to see so many people who I never would have thought would stand with me or who I haven't honestly that I remember from like my experiences with them in high school and middle school the opposite (laughs) yeah so seeing that solidarity was really surprising and uplifting but it did rub me the wrong ways when I did see a lot of just the nothing but just the Black Lives Matter hashtag and it's kind of like it it felt like a cop-out because I know there's some people that I'd spoken to recent, rather recently that had posted the black square that I know their heart wasn't in it. It was more of just a way to not be perceived as, like, racist <laughs> or conservative or unsupportive. Mm-hmm. And if I if you posted the black square to fit in, that is my biggest issue. And that is why I feel like I would prefer, like, I would, I didn't do the Black Lives Matter hashtag because I didn't want the voices of the people who are actually saying things, not just being um, respectful of the past lives or the movement. People that were actually speaking information, posting their art or their messages were getting overshadowed by that. So I really think that there was a balance there that got picked up eventually. Like the conversation, you guys, again, like my white friends, those conversations started themselves. Like Halfway through the day, I was on my store, and it was like, take down the Black Lives Matter hashtag if you posted the black square, because it's overshadowing this and that. And I was like, wow. It's like 12 hours since this trend started, and we're already shifting perspective Mm. to be effective with our action. And that, that to me, was the really cool part of that. Yeah. And I think that it's totally fair to say from your perspective that it was surprising in kind of a way that made you think twice about it, if that makes sense. Is yeah, that fair to say? That like, is very fair. You're like, okay, I'm looking at this black square, but then I'm remembering your actions or I'm remembering um, or not feeling a sort of like allyship from you. Allyship from you, yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying that because I didn't get an apology that like you don't mean it. Like that's not, I don't, I don't know, but... I do know some people and I know I I can confidently assume that your heart wasn't in it for the right reasons and that to me is more damaging overall than anything and I really wish that people would not be self-involved yeah <laughs> and see beyond their own ego sometimes mm-hmm. and that's the biggest thing that will make this movement go as far as it needs to go which is honestly end racism yeah it's for all yeah. people Oh my gosh, I love, first of all, that you say the movement to end racism, because for me, I think a cop-out is like, fight racism, because for me, sometimes I'm like, I'm just not, I'm like, 
not an optimist about big issues like this sometimes because like again like I told you I was watching that documentary the 13th yeah and good one I know and like watching you know the war on drugs and like all this stuff and like how long ago racism like became a thing and then how (laughs) it's still a thing because we're still incarcerating people for not even good reason you know it's like and then not giving them resources when they get out and then not letting them have parole and then all of these terrible things literally based off of their socioeconomic status which by the way it's like that for like a whole other set of reasons you know what I mean it's like lighting systemic racism I could go on I know and it's like my mind like we were in the car earlier and we were just talking about how our minds are literally going in every single direction like we can't like you asked me one question she was literally like how are you doing this week and I was like (laughs) Oh my gosh, I could literally tell you 20 different <laughs> answers. Yeah. So. Like you said, like, how are you feeling this week? I was like, so many things. Yeah. So I've just been, you know, chilling. Trying just, to. Just chilling. Trying just to kind chilling. of compartmentalize. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Get through work. And it's hard. I mean, it's interesting when things like this happen. So back to, like, me not being an optimist. I guess a pessimist about... I'm falling into that trap of being a pessimist, but then actively fighting it because I don't want to be that way. But when you were ending, like saying like, okay, we're going to end racism or we're going to end sexism or we're going to end sex trafficking or or homophobia or xenophobia, you know, it's like all of these things that we say that we're going to end. And like, you know, there's these movements and periods, but like I was reading this thing today that was like, this is not a phase that we're, like, going through right now. Right. Um, but this is rather a revolution. And I want it to be a revolution. And what do you think are the ways in which we can make this a revolution? Just continue to be loud. Continue to beat those streets. Yeah. <laughs> like, you... The best thing we can do is to not give up on the conversation because Mm -hmm. as of right now what's happening is due to the opportunists that chose to loot after the protests after the tear gases went down and the chaos you know ensued it kind of gave no offense honestly not no offense I'm gonna say it it gave the racists another smokescreen to hide behind of oh they were looting they did this there was crime and then bringing up the statistics on black and on black crime as some kind of excuse for police brutality like yeah they can shoot you for speeding because all your people do is sell drugs and speed it's like stuff like that like that kind of narrative and it's frustrating that um this turned into giving another leeway another opposing conversation to what i think is an an unnegotiable thing if you are Mm -hmm. a person that stands for the american way of life and god and country then you fight for your american people and if you're choosing to defend your privilege over fighting for those people, then you are being racist and you are being complacent in that. And the best thing we can do is to keep pushing that forward, is to keep driving that home because the truth doesn't quit. Yeah. And we can't quit with it. Mm. So that's, that's all I've got. The truth doesn't quit. <laughs> it really doesn't. Like, the truth doesn't stop for anybody. No. That is so true. Oh, my gosh. I love that. I'm definitely going to quote you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I totally agree with you I think it's it's it is so hard when 
people it's it's like it's like a gaslighting situation it is it's, it's absolutely yeah it's i'm yeah sorry i don't have a lot of words except for that that's what comes to mind the american like black americans have been gaslighted since slavery yeah <laughs> and it goes back to like again like my experiences at king's <laughs> like i'm sorry i'm gonna keep going back there we also haven't even talked about the court yet but yeah my experiences we'll at there. king's was a lot of me being made to feel stupid over really, really minor things. Like one time in the lounge, it was like junior year, I tweeted something about a joke on about like Saks Fifth Avenue, the store. And like, I just said Saks because at the time you only had 140 characters to my 72 followers. So like, they'll get the point. Did you feel like you had a lot to lose? I had nothing to lose. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. It was just yeah. like, haha, joke, tweet, yeah. carry on. Yeah, yeah. And then the next minute, another girl comes flying down the stairs, goes, Salome, you idiot. It's Saks Fifth Avenue. What is Saks? And like, everyone was laughing at me. Everyone's like, haha, Salome, you're so dumb. It was like this whole thing. And I just kind of laughed along with it to keep, to just like, let it go. But then like, on my way home, I was, like, thinking just, like, offhandedly. I was, like, oh, my God, it didn't even matter that much. But then I was just, like, no, like, you should have just said the whole thing. That, like, just because a lot of, like, people told me <laughs> that something I did, which made no sense, was dumb, I thought, like, oh, that's dumb. And I, it, it, took, it took years for me to actually become confident and say, what? Yeah. <laughs> that was so irrelevant, and I'm confused as to why that pressed you so much. Mm-hmm. Like... It's so powerful, again, the truth. Yeah. It's so powerful how, and honestly, it's sad, but at the same time, like, as disheartening as it is, I think it's so powerful to think about how a little thing like that, which, you know, isn't even little, but it's like, at the moment, it's it was so trivial. Yeah. So trivial. But now you're looking back on it, and you're like, I'm thinking about that example it's amazing to me how one like seemingly trivial thing that someone said to you so many years ago yeah. um affects you now and like I'm not downplaying that at all I'm I agree with you like there are things in my life too that I, you're like making me think of like oh when that person said like I'm thinking of something that someone said to me on the bus in sixth grade when I first started yeah. at that school and like literally I will never forget it. Like, the things that people say to you have lasting effects. And I'm angry for you, first of all, because, like, I, like, when I was in high school, I could have stopped it. Like, I could have been, like, don't, like, you know, I'm, like, definitely, like, thinking back on, like, high school me. But, like, I'm a changed person. Like, once we got (laughs) out of that bubble, like, we. 180. Yeah, literally. Like, we are social justice advocates. Like, (laughs) I was in a social justice club in high school, but did not understand even half of what I understand now. And, like... Oh, yeah. But even then, social justice at King's was, like, let's give these poor black children toys once a year and then think that we changed their lives and cry about it at chapel every year because we made such a difference. And you're just, like, Alameo, what? That's the name (laughs) of the school, by the way, because I don't think that they know what that is. Um, Yeah, so I just wanted to explain. But, yes, that is the name of the school we went to. Um, And also, like, yes, we do have qualms with... With the school, but I want you guys to know too that like there are know, wonderful people. There. We we did enjoy our time there, we did and enjoy like our time. there was there were hard things, but um, but I do think that it's important for us to be authentic about experiences yeah. and how they affected us because yes, I had a lot of really negative experiences in high school and honestly traumatic, and like yeah. I don't 
want to downplay that and like I don't want to downplay your experiences so I'm glad you're bringing them up yeah it's it's just now I'm looking back and understanding that those weren't just comments those were microaggressions and when you are a minority at an institution like Kingswood's you experienced non-stop microaggressions at least in my case I experienced non-stop microaggressions it's like I would walk in I would be walking to Spanish and I remember one time sophomore year from Christmas, I got a pair of red, like, low-pro vans, and I thought those were the sickest. So I was like, mm-hmm. right now at school, and I just remember walking into school, and a bunch of the boys were just like, oh my god, she's wearing vans. And I was like, why is that such a big deal? Like, why was that such a conversation topic? I felt like everything I did was, like, you're people like would whisper about it. Yeah, you were under a microscope, but not, a, but, like, not in a way that people were looking at you to care. They were looking for things to pick apart because you were different. Mm. And... Like, I really had to compartmentalize that and just, like, shove it down because I wanted to be social. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to just look at my friends and not think about hurt feelings. I I wanted to have a life. I wanted to have a life. And there was also a lot of other things going on with, like, home and my church that have other traumas that I didn't understand either and didn't, wasn't able to deal with. So, yeah, upon... We graduated, went to college, and, like, upon college graduation and extensive therapy, I feel like I'm now able to, like, look back at all of those times and all of those comments and all of those times that people would try to unbraid my hair during class or, like, that... Stupid shit. Stupid shit. It's just, like, <laughs> that. those were just nonstop microaggressions, and, yeah. like, over time, microaggressions build into very, very real trauma, and... Mm. I saw a trauma specialist, sort of, kind of, who helped me deal with that and forgive, and forgive people who didn't even understand they'd hurt me, or kind of being able to move on without an apology, which, again, has made this whole thing so different, because I've been getting apologies, like, texts from, like, people I haven't spoken to in years that are telling me things that I wasn't even mad at them about, like, things that I don't even remember, and they're like, I remember one time in junior high, I took out your braids and I like rubbed, like played with your hair and called you a chia pet. That was so messed up. And I'm like, that was, and I didn't even remember that. Yeah. <laughs> but like things like that. And I'm just like, cool. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of um, power to your words and I really just appreciate you for sharing those things. Um, do you want to chat a little bit more about, <laughs> elaborate, I know a lot of people are questioning um, you kind of dropping the cult <laughs> um, into our our conversation before. Do you want to do you want to talk a little more about that? <laughs> yeah, I'll explain that offhand comment that I was raised in a cult um, in some more detail. Yeah, I was born in Toronto, Ontario. Let's go there. We'll start from there. Um, we lived in Vancouver, BC, over in New Westminster until I was about six, and then we moved to Seattle. So during that time, my father and my family got really involved in a church there called Cloverdale Bible Way. Um, They are part of a branch that they're kind of loosely known amongst themselves as message believers. The whole point of their the whole point of that organization is that they they don't want to be labeled. They believe denominations of Christianity are like evil. So they themselves are separate. They're not a denomination. There's no like real name. They just call themselves believers or Bible believers. So it's really vague and strange, which is why it's it sucks you in. Because you're not taught that you stand any differently. You are just taught that, you, that you're a special breed of a Christian. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
So the foundation of that church is based on a man who they believe is their prophet named William Branham. You can go ahead and Google him. He is one messed up individual. Holy. But um, he um, claimed to have all these visions about the end times and um, he said he had a vision of how he was in hell and he's seen hell and heaven. He's heard from God and he believed that he was the fulfillment of of Bible book Malachi 4, which is about preparing the bride of Christ for the rapture and how Elijah is going to come back and do that. He believed he was that prophet. Or more, yeah, he did believe he was that prophet. He would like say prophecies and like, he would never directly say it. He would just paint himself through his ministries as that to where the manipulated the congregation into come as if they'd come to that conclusion themselves. Although that wasn't. So there was that. Um, it all started, the first home church of the Message Labor and Bible Labors was in um, Jeffersonville, Indiana. It was called the Branham Tabernacle, and that is, you know, what he preached. It was kind of a cross between, like, a, it was like a Baptist, Pentecostals, and, like, Westboro Baptist Church just, like, all had an orgy and had a weird baby that was, like, born and raised in the deep south and didn't understand anything about like humanity <laughs> other than like you know the common lens of Christianity then that is definitely Branham's church so um because of the Pentecostal influences we women weren't believed to it wasn't acceptable for women to wear pants women had to be covered from the knees down basically from like your neck to your knees you had to be covered Wearing clothes that were really tight was kind of offensive. And at the time of Branham's church, it was very simple. It was just, oh, women don't cut your hair because he believed that hair was your glory and was always related it to Samson. Even though Samson was a man, it didn't make any sense, but whatever. <laughs> Doesn't matter, we believed it. So we, women weren't allowed to cut the hair. Women had to be covered from knees to neck. Um, women weren't allowed to work because he believed that men were to be the breadwinner and that men were, you know, a woman's place was to be with her children in, in the kitchen. Um, there was just a lot of oppression around women. Men were also told that they shouldn't ever have hair longer than their ears because long hair was for sissies. Men should never wear shorts. Um, women shouldn't play sports unless you can play it in a skirt, but dance didn't count because dance was provocative. So, like, I struggled a lot growing up with all of these rules because all of the things I wanted the most, I was, like I said, I've always loved fashion and pop culture. Like, those were the things that made me like before we moved to Seattle like my father was actually living in Seattle alone by himself and my mom and I my mom was with her kids kind of, was in New Westminster kind of single mommying me and my sister until my brother came along so we ended up moving to Seattle to be with him because he was kind of jump-starting his company it was weird anyone who's like a first-gen immigrant gets the struggle but like that was our situation my early early childhood so I don't remember Cloverdale being all that invasive into my life until we moved to Seattle and where now it was like my father's house, my father's rules. I no longer got to watch the Brandy Norwood version of Cinderella. I didn't get to watch The Proud Family. I, we didn't have a TV anymore. Um, all we had is a computer that was strictly regulated. So when my dad wasn't home between like <laughs> school and like sports practices or whatever, I would just like sit and like binge like iCarly and Hannah Montana and like Destiny's Child and just watch like as many things. It was like that one and a half hour period was the time where I would just like see the world. But then I would make mistakes, so I would, like, leave a tab up, and my dad would come home from work, and I'd come home from trouble. <laughs> it was, like, this whole thing. So, um, yeah. 
the balance between cult and normal life was non-existent. It was your life, those rules, that mentality, that mindset. It was all I knew. So in some ways, King's was the best place for me because once I started attending there, I could see Christianity through other lenses. I could see how other, and I kind of had to wrestle with that idea of like, well, if you were supposed to go to the same heaven, but like my life is so much stricter than yours, like how is this supposed to work? And then running back to my family or my father and my church friends and kind of trying to explain my concerns and getting a lot of backlash because they believed that if you were the true bride of Christ, then there's nothing that should ever make you question anything ever. You were literally taught to not look left or right and just stay on the path toward heaven. We weren't encouraged to ask questions we weren't encouraged well we were encouraged to ask questions as long as they were questions about the bible that could be answered comfortably through the church if you ask something like uh, i don't even know (laughs) it like can i go outside after midnight (laughs) or even just like why do we have church every friday night or why do i have to wear a long skirt like why can't i just wear really loose pants that's not sexy like no one's gonna really see my figure in those either and just saying that like no pants are for men the prophet said pants are for men that's it not even the bible said well the, well, the bible would always say like women yeah. cover yourselves and they would always be like see and i'm like she wears jeans and she's going to heaven like why can't yeah. i be trendy and comfortable so what what was the the thing that that kind of caused you to really question yeah, this was the big one. So, because Branham's church was founded in, I believe, 1930 was his third wave, he was known for having these really big tent meetings where he would, like, diagnose people's hearts. He would, like, drag them up to the pulpit and be like, your name is this and this, you have this illness, you've, like, had this hardship in your life, you've prayed about this. And then, you know, the thing was that no one had ever, he never met these men, he'd never known who they were women, and this was just God through him revealing their lives until I found out later through um, testimonials of former church members that had attended his tent meetings that these were all people he knew. He'd spoken to them before. It was all just a front. So another, um, and but that was why people trusted him so much is because that lie and that narrative went so far. So it was really hard to argue logic because people would always say, well, the divinity of God or supernatural defies all logic. So supernatural things happen to this man. He did supernatural works. He's obviously a man of God. Who are you to question him? He said this over the pulpit. God said that over the pulpit. You don't get it. So what if it doesn't make sense to you? It's not supposed to. It's supernatural. So like that is so hard to argue with because now you're stuck you're stuck in the juxtaposition of not only does this thing not make sense and you have all these questions if you do have questions that don't leave you it means you're not revelated and you're not saved and that is so much scarier than confronting the actual Mm. questions and the reality and that is why cults are so hard to escape it's not about the compounds there wasn't even a compound it's why people at Cloverdale refuse to call themselves a cult because you can leave any time. There's no consequences. When I was, like, 14, 15, I just kind of stopped going. And then when I was in college, I really stopped fucking going. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that that's it. So yeah. the hard thing for me was um, the Selma movements were going on during Brandon's ministry. So there was a lot of questions 
about interracial marriages, about uh, that movement, about the violence that was ensuing because of it. And Brandon would say things like, I don't know why these colored people want to be in our schools. They have good schools of their own. Like, you know, like, I really don't like the violence. I don't like the fighting. He would say things like, I don't believe in interracial marriages because God made all people unique and individuals and you should be with people that understand you more which doesn't make any any sense doesn't make sense zero sense but (laughs) but because that one offhand comment wasn't an offhand it wasn't even really an offhand comment it was like paragraphs he would say really messed up things like why would a beautiful black woman want to have a mulatto child which is so offensive (laughs) and which led me to believe that his distaste for interracial relationships had nothing to do with, you know, being understood or being loved properly as you should because anyone can love you. It has nothing to do with your skin color. It was just the distaste for biracial children, which I think is... It's a whole other rabbit hole. It's a whole other rabbit hole. But again, using that, using, I guess, religion or divinity as a front to project racism. So now you're probably wondering how... black family ended up being in the, involved in this. Um, shockingly, our church had a, had a really high um, African-American population. Like, there was a lot of Africans, there was a lot of Russians, there was a, just, it was so diverse, and that's why people at Cloverdale love that, because they're like, we're such a diverse community, and they are. But the problem with that kind of diversity when preaching those kind of ideology is that a couple years ago, there was a couple that was married in our church, and it was a half. It was a um, half um, El Salvadorian man and um, a younger woman who was Chinese, like Chinese. Her like first gen immigrant. Her father actually was one of the ministers, and we knew their family pretty well. Chinese, <laughs> so but because they both looked white the church blessed their marriage so I remember looking at my sister who's still pretty involved in that community and being like so is no one questioning this and she was like yeah a lot of the black people at church are confused I'm like you're just now confused you're just now getting confused (laughs) yeah and it's that kind of thing all the time like when I was in high school one of my best friends was white and she was (laughs) having a lot of um moments with the black teenage boys at our church (laughs) and secret and I kind of was you know keeping that under wraps and being an ally there and like that stuff and like that was again another started the questioning in my brain of like why is it that I'm told I can't be with certain I can't have affection for certain guys or have these feelings for certain men but yet you have and you do when you act on them and the repercussions aren't nearly as damaging as they would have been had I done that. Yeah. And it made me start to wonder if the foundation of my church was more based on just the, you know, loving white, the white Jesus <laughs> and not about loving real Jesus, who is very, very brown people. So, <laughs> like, that was the racial element in our church was my biggest step back and... I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad I was I'm so glad I was at Kings and I'm glad I was finally kind of out of Canada because most of the people in that community either live in like Blaine, Linden, Washington, or like around um like Langley, BC. So 
you're really not motivated to get out. When, when my sister went to college, she just went to Pullman. Like, she's still in Washington. The conversations at our church, people are saying, like, oh, she's going to go to sin. Like, you sent her to college. Like, you can't. Like, people are not encouraged to ever really leave their homes or leave the fold of the community. And if I'm lucky because I did. You know, my my parents' employment was in Seattle. Our life was in Seattle. So I was able to have some distance from that community and that um, mentality. And if I didn't have another look at the world, I don't know if I would have been able to, like, fully remove myself from it. I hope I would have, but, like, I don't like to operate on what ifs. (laughs) You just don't know. Wow, it's a lot to sink in. I think it's interesting because that's just another reason. I know (laughs) everyone's probably wondering, why does she just love reflecting on the things she loves about her podcast? Well, I do. (laughs) Um, And you are one of the biggest reasons that I get excited about podcasting because I really don't laugh. Um, (laughs) Okay, fine, laugh. Um, I, because you share just these amazing things and like, I don't know. I think that your vulnerability is so brave. So thank you for being willing to educate us (laughs) for one thing. Um, and then open up to us about like your life. Cause you know, that's what podcasting should be. Yeah. So, um, Oh, and that being said, I don't want anyone to think that I'm out here being like, Cloverdale is disgusting. Take them down. I like part of me does feel that, but however, there are some really wonderful, loving people. And, like, I know it's weird to talk about a cult this way because there, I had so much trauma and so much damage from that community. But I also, that was the first, and one of the first places that I ever felt loved, even if it wasn't true, unconditional love, because they're also going to say you leave, people don't like you anymore. <laughs> like, that, how I felt around my community, that safety is the same safety I've drove to find outside of that and I can finally say that at 24 I think I'm finally surrounded by people that I really truly feel safe around Mm. familiar with and that's all family is that you can lean back on you can lean back on yeah um so what are I guess, like, what's kind of the difference between the beliefs that you used to have and the beliefs that you, and the ideologies and the things that you hold true now Hmm. for your belief system? I actually have a really weird answer for that. I feel like previously, as a younger teenager in that mentality, I didn't actually have any beliefs of my own. I didn't really think for myself. I was constantly just interpreting yeah I was interpreting what I was being fed so nothing's changed in my opinions I feel like I've always been a rather open non-judgmental person like if I see someone literally I can see someone like in a clown costume like peeing in the street and I'll be like that's gross and weird but you probably have your reasons to do so (laughs) and it's not my place to judge you I will just you know maybe suggest you cover up (laughs) even then that's not my place to make you do so (laughs) so I've always, I feel like I've always had that mentality, so I just didn't think. I never thought, because I was never taught to, honestly. I just never thought about what I was being fed. I just, like, swallowed it, shoved it down, swallowed it, shoved it down. And the biggest thing, one of the biggest um, uh, 
things like to tell you over the pulpit is the story of John um, on the island of Patmos, <laughs> where he is instructed to give, he was instructed by the angel of the Lord to like eat this book, you know, and the, we were only, we could only read the New James Version of the Bible. I don't know why, Cloverdale was just really weird, and like if you had the new, like um, the new age or the message, you were like shunned. People like, the message is just slang, like you had to read the King James Version. So, the King James Version obviously describes it weird as in John ate the book. So, that was what they taught us all the time. They were like, John didn't hesitate, he ate the book. And yeah, it was bit in his belly, but it was sweet in his mouth, and like you just gotta eat the book. So, like that constant preaching of just take it, just eat it, just take it, take it, don't think about it, just take it because God wants you to just take it. And if you don't swallow it, you'll, you're not as close to him anymore. And it, it resonated more than I wish it did because I didn't think until probably like I was 17 was when I started to have like opinions and thoughts for myself and the strength of them and the strength of my emotions and my passions scared me so much <laughs> for so long and art has been the best way to regulate that and find balance mm -hmm. again yeah awesome um do you think that the people that are in your life now like the people that you like feel comfortable with and that you surround yourself with are encouraging of like a positive like faith environment and like yeah um that like a I don't know like a positive and like kind of type of good for you like relationship with God and, and faith and absolutely yeah. and I do think that the mentality behind Christianity is definitely evolving mm -hmm. a lot of people are understanding now that um you know, the common interpretations of the Bible and our views on some things aren't really as cut and dry or as black and white as they should be. And it's making that faith feel safe again. Mm. And I haven't felt a safety in a congregation in a while, but um, yeah. yeah. I'd gone to church a couple of times. And like going to church is hard because Cloverdale also really preaches adamantly that like other churches are just as like hell filled as like a club as <laughs> the streets yeah so it was so hard it was weird for me to go to other churches like it was just a taboo thing you didn't attend other churches like if you don't go to Cloverdale you just don't go to church so attending other churches with my friends in college like we went to Quest Church a lot mm -hmm. went, I went to Bethany with you yeah a couple times um has just been so eye-opening and so comforting to see people pursuing God in a way that's healthy <laughs> yeah. not only to their community but to themselves and mm. I like that. Oh, I like that too. And I was going to mention like going to church with you has been really awesome because you can reflect on like what's happening and you know, you'll be honest with me if it's like kind of uncomfortable or like really great. And <laughs> yeah. honestly, I am just thankful to be in a worship setting with you and I am so freaking proud of you for the progress that you've had and like just knowing yourself and honestly I think this whole journey when it comes to like Cloverdale, Black Lives Matter, like this whole thing has been um just a a long journey and, and super incredibly hard. Incredibly hard and traumatic. So hard and terrible. <laughs> and like I I hate it's so you know, I feel I'm definitely one of those people that like I feel what my friends 
are feeling and like what I want to be there for them it's like you know the two it's like the martyr like they just like want it they're like I can save you um and this week I definitely navigated like how to best communicate with you especially because like obviously you are most in my heart right now and Mm -hmm. so I I first of all just thank you for being able to articulate some of this and like inspire some people that maybe are seeking out counseling or yeah. want to seek out counseling, but honestly, we've both done it, and, like, I would recommend it. I really... <laughs> <laughs> I had an ex-boyfriend that literally said, I just feel... Because I, I had gone to therapy, and I was at a therapy treatment at the time, and one thing they did besides just um, counseling and therapy was, like, yoga, art therapy. Some days I would just do nothing but, like, draw or, like... Mm do some hatha so I had had a yoga day and I would come back to his house and I was just kind of like ugh, like I don't know like today I just didn't get any comfort out of therapy I felt like it was just a waste of time <laughs> he goes dead ass <laughs> yeah I just feel like people who are, have like high intelligence just like don't really take kindly to therapy and I gave him a weird look and he goes like, but I've never been to therapy and I'm just like that's why you just said that <laughs> oh my goodness sweetie yeah. you don't know <laughs> yeah oh yeah no I I would recommend doing that and like talking through and like also Please feel your feelings, like especially this week. Um, I think that all feelings matter. Oh my god, I shouldn't have said it like that. <laughs> all right, um, <laughs> all feelings matter. Okay, I just, please. I'm not even gonna edit this out because you should all know that I just made that mistake. But what I mean by that is totally separate from Black Lives Matter. I do think that we should all feel our feelings because, like, we could be on like a really bumpy day where we're just like at one point we're like sobbing because like what's happening in our world is incredibly terrible and terrifying but then we could also have a really high point where we're like wow I am so happy to see this solidarity and like more than that like it brings me so much joy to see people getting behind this movement to see people getting it yeah and I'm getting it yeah just get it it's like this is the therapy. This is like therapy, and I'm like, yeah. And I feel like my soul's been healed from so many wounds that I didn't want to acknowledge. Yeah. From this, and I'm really grateful for that. And I wasn't. Ex- I I really just like written myself off on ever having any true closure from some of the traumas I'd experienced from you know my largely Caucasian community growing up, and I've gotten some closure. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. I didn't expect. I didn't expect it. I wasn't seeking it, and but now that I have it, it's such a gift. And I'm like. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. It's also made me... That's awesome. Yeah. It's also made me look at, like... (laughs) In some ways, I guess, my own family's ideology. I mentioned this earlier. You're probably wondering how a black family ended up in a cult founded by a white supremacist. It's just, like... And why there were so many... um, Why it was so diverse. And the only reason I can think of... And I'm only saying that because my family's from Ghana. We're from West Africa. And the mentality there is very, very patriarchal. It's incredibly um, stoic. The men are expected to, you know, be men. You're breadwinners. You're of your household. You can cheat if you want. <laughs> your wife cooks. That's what happens. And like that is just how it's been. So, in some ways, I understand when all of us emigrated to the Northwest in this society that is so different from home. 
finding a community like Cloverdale that also says, like, oh, yeah, we hate gays. Like, oh, that's disgusting. Like, yeah, you should stay separate. Like, black people marry black people. White people marry white people. It resonated with my parents. It did because it resonated with their upbringing. So that's why they... Well, there's your empathy. There it goes. I don't want to... There's em- that empathy. I don't want to empathize with my aggressors, but I do. <laughs> but, like, I think that's really amazing that you have this holistic perspective. You have to because... Yeah. There was also, I mean, long story, but there was also some child abuse in my child, <laughs> childhood. So it's just, as you grow older and as you start to, like, reflect on the things that happened, you're always going to think, why would they say this? Why would they do this? Why would they hurt me like this? And it's the constant why that you sometimes have, have to take yourself out of your own perspective just to get some kind of answer to, like, keep going. And that's one thing I, that's one thing I did kind of have to do to be like why would my father resonate so deeply with this terrible ideology that did nothing but damage our family mm-hmm. because it was familiar to him because it reminded him of home and because it's the only it's the best way he knew how to raise a family that was comfortable to himself I say that to himself because he's a huge egomaniac <laughs> like it's it's yeah. just honestly so beautiful to me to like see and it's like funny because like as we're I can like see out the window like the sun's like trying to come out like right it's like a metaphor for like (laughs) how I'm reacting to what you're saying and how it's resonating with me because like you have so much empathy and you are (laughs) whether you like say it blatantly or not like I love how humble you are about it and how like just the way that you beautifully describe I mean obviously it's awful and heartbreaking but like if I have to say bluntly their homophobia exceeded their own inner racism which is so messed up but like okay it's I mean yeah that's definitely one way to put it (laughs) Um, but yes I I think that it's it's just really it's captivating to me like how you can articulate what's been going on in your life so therapy yeah therapy (laughs) and I would definitely recommend it and um let's just kind of wrap up our episode with talking about a couple of things. I know we're kind of switching gears, but this all just relates back to, I love how I kind of like had these two things that we're going to talk about going into it. And you like just integrated them and you're like (laughs) weaving them into one thing. I told you it's all the same story. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, Oh, I just, you were such an artist and such a poet, but, um, Guys, I don't know why she laughs at me so much. Because I'm so uncomfortable. Oh my god. (laughs) I hate affection. It's okay, she loves it. Um, But I will will say that we did want to shout out some important resources for you. So why don't you take the lead on that? Ooh, yes, resources. So one thing that I've noticed a lot of my friends doing is kind of taking on the really hard conversation of white fragility, which is also a book you should read. (laughs) Like, that's resource number one. Read White Fragility. I don't remember who wrote it, but it's on Amazon and it's a great book. Um, there's that. Um, of just about educating themselves and their friends or their family about the very real truth that just because you too struggled, accept, like understanding the black struggle or accepting the black struggle doesn't invalidate your own struggles. Like I've had conversations with someone, again, same ex, ew, I hate talking about him, but here we go. He was like, we were having this conversation about white privilege, and I was frustrated because he was saying things that I strongly, that like rattled my core values. <laughs> and I was kind of being like, I think your white privilege is affecting your perspective on this. And a couple of days later, he was like, I just don't like being told that I have privilege from someone who went to private school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I understand that. And that actually makes perfect sense. Like, I get it. 
but you also do need to understand that just because I, we didn't struggle financially doesn't mean that my struggles are any less traumatic than yours. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't invalidate your struggle. I know that life was hard for you, and but like life was hard for me too in a different way. So you saying that my struggle isn't as deep because you were complacent in it doesn't yeah and like that doesn't somehow like yeah it makes no sense yeah (laughs) just like all you're doing is saying that like my struggles now my struggles are more valuable to me and I don't want to accept yours because it makes me feel like I'm a bad person and that makes me feel like my struggles don't matter yeah. And that's and that's literally going back to the idea of comparative suffering. Yes. That is comparative suffering. That's a real life example. It's the most toxic thing you can do to yourself. Yeah, it's yeah, and it comes in a lot of forms. And um so yes, you're saying have these conversations. Have these conversations. Read white fragility. What else? Read white fragility and like watch things. Like ha- the best way to have these conversations with people who are kind of stuck in this mind frame is just Educate showing yourself. them. Showing them a perspective that you can't run from, you know, if it's a movie or a show, it's like you can't really run from that narrative Mm. and things like Dear White People are kind of like humorous and shocking, but very raw and very realistic. Um, 13th. The 13th is excellent. When they see us is so good. I've been loving having um, people watch American Sun, which is a play um, that Carrie Washington wrote. Um, it's about a mother and her biracial son and how he's gone missing and her struggle with the police kind of getting some closure with that. And it's a really great take because they ha- they both have really great perspectives on the Blue Lives Matter argument, which again, I think understanding your aggressor is the best way to overcome these things mm-hmm. and find some equilibrium. And But it also has a lot of things like the Black Lives matter movement and the struggle and like that juxtaposition and how they clash is such a pivotal like it's just such a pivotal thing to go Mm -hmm. on in your brain like I really suggest watching that also her show Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu Reese Witherspoon I just started that I watched the first episode I the last episode had me in tears like crying into my wine that's where I'm going (laughs) I know it starts off a little bit like oh kind of eerie like I'm not really sure where this is going people expected a murder but yeah oh yeah but then I was like oh wow it's convicting I would watch that for sure um and then I was just racking my brain trying to figure out what the name of this book was that I ordered I'll just put it in my comments when I post this because at the moment I can't find it but there are so many good resources Tarana Burke do you know who that is no she started the me too movement okay so she, I know you never hear her name, but you know what the Me Too movement is. Yeah. Um, she <laughs> is an amazing black woman. Um, she, you look at her Instagram, she says a lot of amazing things. Um, she's also interviewed on Brittany Brown's podcast, Unlocking mm-hmm. S. Um, and yeah, just don't stay silent. I talk about this in my mini episode, but I. I think that we definitely need to empathize because everyone is processing this differently, but, you know, we need to use our privilege for good. And we have outlets. We have social media. I heard a story about um, a man that was talking to someone at the bank and she, like, mentioned to the teller, like, all lives matter. And he had a, he cornered her in the parking lot and, like, gently and had a conversation with her and she was like, Thank you for your perspective. We need more of that. Um, 
I don't get into people's faces for no reason though. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, gently. I gently. I think if you think it's an appropriate moment and you have a few minutes, like yeah, yeah. use your judgment. Yeah, but um, I also think that it's just not the time for us to just sit back and like wait for social media to go back to normal. Mm-hmm.